Hi everyone and welcome to the 17th annual Harlem International Film Festival Virtual Edition. My name is Marco Solis and today we have a talk back with an incredible filmmaker. His film is called When I Get Grown, Reflections of Freedom Rider. The director cinematographer's name is Chris Freitower and he's here today to let us know a little bit about his film. Welcome Chris, how you doing? I'm doing well, Marcus. Pleasure to uh, be a part of this. Thank you for coming. Thank you for spending some time with us. Let's get right down to the meat and potatoes. This is an incredible, incredible documentary. Tell us, tell us a little bit how this film came came about, and tell us a little bit about the film. John Lewis was my roommate. He kept bothering me about going to these workshops. Now we've had an ugly mob outside. Uh, they have uh, injured some of the federal marshals. Uh, they they burned some automobiles. Some of them had children with them, babies in their arms. And they knocked all his teeth out and everything else. I was there. I said this to myself. When I get grown, I'm going to do something about this. So that was my purpose for wanting to get grown. You got people who went to the military and they risked their lives for their country. So I saw it as no different from that. Certainly. And again, just uh, want to thank you for being able to be a part of such an important film festival um, and honored to have uh, When I Get Grown be a part of it. The, the story relating to Freedom Riders, some people know about, others don't, but it falls into the category of pure drama, but something that's really, really true in terms of the sacrifices that young men and women, the price they paid for freedom. And um, I've been, I'm someone who's followed the civil rights movement and, you know, freedom writers in particular, and the story of Bernard Lafayette, who we highlight in this film, is just exceptional what he's able to recall and document about what he went through, John Lewis, um, I mean, even Dr. King and the risks he took, the sacrifices he and those other Freedom Riders made, uh, it was worthy of looking at. There have been other documentaries about Freedom Riders, but this is a unique perspective because to my knowledge, it's the only documentary that is exclusively in the voice of the protagonist. Absolutely. And, and that's that was my first question. How did you feel, one, as a filmmaker, and two, just as a person, hearing that? I mean, that was all, that's almost like gold. It's like striking gold. How did you feel as a person and as a filmmaker with this film? Well, when I started hearing the details of the story, I realized the weight of what we had and how we needed to treat it very responsibly and so much of it that hadn't been told. And, and if I may give you an example, when you ask about my feelings, when I heard um, Dr. Lafayette describe what happened to him when he was seven years old, um, 
it literally brought tears to my eyes. In fact, as we edited and shaped the documentary, I literally cried the first half dozen times that I heard him tell the story because for him to talk about what happened when he was seven years old in watching his grandmother humiliated by the system and how that shaped his entire life and, and turned him effectively into a civil rights icon, a human rights icon. Um, it, it moved me. It continues to move me. And I knew then we had to treat this in a very special way. And that's why we sought out the um, artistry of uh, animator Eli Copperman so that we could recreate that for the very beginning of the film. I love that. Now, <laughs> you, you just opened up a whole, a whole can of worms with a lot of things. So the experience that he had, and, and I don't want to give too much away about the film, but the experience that he had was traumatic, flat out trauma. So how does that affect you for the rest of your life? You know, those are the things that we're dealing with. And that's the thing that you dealt with. How did, you know, well, when you talk about the effect that trauma makes, I, I, I want to answer it two different ways. As a viewer, it affects me. Hearing the story and him describing feeling like he had been basically cut uh, to the core. I'm cut to the core as, a, as someone listening to his story. So there's an impact there, but when we're talking about trauma for uh, people of color, I, I, this is why I think these stories need to be told because there's so many that take for granted. When we say, for example, that black lives matter and people get into discussions and arguments, the bottom line is that historically black lives have not mattered. So to tell these stories, to continue getting the anecdotes out there, these anecdotes of trauma. Uh, and if you are reading the headlines, these traumatic incidents keep occurring. So the more we can tell the stories, the more people can fit that into what's happening today and to understand current events. Absolutely. Uh, we, can, we can take a current, uh, current event from today, from two days ago. You know, what happened, there's a shooting. How does that affect, you know, people? How does that affect people of color? How does that affect black people living their day-to-day -day life? What are you thinking in the back of your head as, you know, a black person walking out of your house every day? Is this going to happen to me? What is my life? What's my value? So, yes, absolutely. So the thing that I do like about your film is that he took that traumatic experience and turned it into a beautiful, positive experience and you know marcos that's i appreciate your thought press process in, in observing that because so many times we can watch a documentary we can hear a story we don't necessarily take what we've observed and learned and project it forward in in terms of what we do with our lives i love that dr lafayette um you know, a story this heavy can, for some, be too heavy, and where they think, ah, you know what, I don't need to, I don't need to see trauma. Um, but it, what he's able to do so beautifully, and it's just a part of who he is, 
is that it actually is positive. It ends in a positive way because he's emphasizing the impact that you and I can make. And uh, to me, that, you know, I, I don't want to take too much credit as a filmmaker because it's Dr. Lafayette who, that's his life. Right. You know, when, when Dr. King was assassinated um, on April 4th of 1968, Dr. Lafayette had the motel room directly underneath dr king's he, today he still keeps the the key from the lorraine motel wow. because he wants to remember these things and 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 um revere the history but he's able to every day of his life teach nonviolence and to get, continue to make an impact you just hit me with something like it just hit me like a ton of bricks yes the trauma is the inspiration that's the inspiration we need. And as one person, we may not understand what the value of what one person is doing, but it can affect a whole movement. It can affect the world, not, not just your city, not just your state, not just the country, but the way people think about other humans and the way we connect to human beings. And I, I hear you. What you've brilliantly done in this film, documenting, he argues somewhere in the middle of the film that were it not for some of this trauma, he wouldn't be the person that he is today. He talks about it being redemptive. And this is something that Dr. King taught over and over again, that undeserved suffering is indeed redemptive. I just don't think, Marcos, that we can tell these stories enough. I think there's so much... Um, not just simply to learn, not just interesting stories or anecdotes, but how we can conduct our lives in a better way. And Dr. King laid out a roadmap for us to do that, inspired by uh, Jesus Christ and Gandhi, according to himself. And then um, these disciples like John Lewis, like Bernard Lafayette and others that took the teaching and created a future that people write books and make documentaries about. Absolutely. And who are these people that actually step up and do it? Who are these people that actually do it? We've all, all had trauma in some way. Who are the people who take that trauma, take that as inspiration and actually step up and create the movement? That's well, so brilliant. This is the beauty of it, is yeah. that these people are everyday folk. Everyday folks. These are not lettered people. These are not people that have Stanford and Harvard degrees. These are everyday uh, folk. And, and this is another reason why the stories capture people so well, is that, for example, in Birmingham, it was children. It was children that completely turned the tide. Yes. Yes. And, and and in the case of, well, really most of the civil rights movement, it was young people. Uh, it, but I, to your point, it does cause us to ask the question, who are these people? And who am I when I watch something like this? And, and, and the, does the burden fall on me? I say, and I argue that yes, it does. It does. It absolutely does. And it doesn't have to be as monumental as these people. I mean but it's monumental in your way. It's your refusal to do something that then activates another shift, another shift, another shift, another shift, and the trajectory goes this way. So I, I, 
I hear you. And that's, again, if I can go back to the importance of these stories, I believe the more these stories are told, then the more we realize and recognize when it's our turn. Absolutely. Now, I have to say, some of these images I've never seen before. Well, two things. One, growing up the way that I grew up, there's a lot of this stuff that I don't even know. This is history that I don't know. So I'm seeing for the first time. I know a little bit about it, but I didn't know in depth about it. I've never seen half of these images. You know, we know Dr. King. I, it's my responsibility, but I've never listened to all the King speeches. You know, so to see this stuff for the first time, it really puts something in my heart, you know, and made me think, wow, man, I really am standing on someone's shoulder as a black man in this Amen. Country. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. Well, and Marcos, can I, if I may add to that, you know, sometimes we'll sit and watch um, a series, we'll binge watch a series. If it's something that's historical, uh, we may think of a couple items of trivia. But let me tr let me try this one on you. Are you aware that when Dr. King was in First Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, and and it was publicized to where there were fifteen hundred people in the church, but the mob that that white mob outside was over three thousand. And we, we're not able to go into detail about this in the documentary because we're, we're relying exclusively on Dr. Uh, Lafayette in the documentary. But here, here's what I want to add to it that I think is extraordinary. They, that mob was repeatedly throwing Molotov cocktails at the church. One went through a window and hit an elderly man in the head. The mob wasn't able to successfully set the church on fire but they were trying to do it so much so that when Dr. King got on the phone with Bobby Kennedy, the reports coming into Kennedy were so concerning that he went into meetings with the president of the United States and they ended up putting the Pentagon on high alert at Fort Benning, Georgia. These aren't things you hear about. You don't hear about the Pentagon getting involved, the president getting involved. Imagine if that mob had successfully burned that church. They were trying. They were trying with all their might to burn that church to the ground with 1,500 people in it, including Dr. King, John Lewis, Fred Shuttlesworth. The list goes on and on and on. Imagine if they had been successful, the kind of history you and I would be talking about today. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, I'm telling you, it, it, this is serious drama. It's incredible. And, you know, to further what I'm saying, it's, it's a shame that we weren't taught this in school. You know, and our, and our government decided to write history a certain way, and we're taught history a certain way. You know, obviously my, my parents, my mother lived in the South, at this mm. time. So she has stories of segregation, you know, and every now and then I hear a little story, but one day yeah. I'm going to sit down and have a, you know, a real talk with her and say, mom, yeah. tell me everything, you know, maybe it's because I didn't want to hear it. Maybe because I don't want to hear that, you know, because I can't believe it. Yeah. Even though I know it's true, but these are the stories that need to be told because it gives you a whole different perspective as to where we are today. 
Totally agree. Totally agree. And I, I strongly encourage you, Marcus, not just to have that conversation, but to turn on a recorder and, and to capture that because she may only want to tell it one time. Right. Who knows? But those anecdotes are just gold, in my opinion, because people don't, you know, society doesn't just change overnight or in 10 years or in 30 years. Yeah. There's something that hundreds of years of slavery and many decades of segregation, it does something to the character of a, of a people. And I'm not just talking about people of color. I'm talking about white people, too. You can't be... Uh, an oppressor for hundreds of years and a law change changes and all of a sudden you're different. So these stories really do educate us. They really let us know how we deal with today. Absolutely. And you're talking about a country, you know, and actually a world at the time that was built and designed in a certain way. So of course it can't change overnight. It can't change when you, you know, you free the slaves in, in the 1800s, 1860s. It doesn't change immediately. There's, there's a, you know, there's, there's time. There's a time period where the mindset has to change, the thought process about the way we do things. Three fifths of a person, you know, where are we now? Are, are we responsible as a country to pay reparations for, you know? There's so many questions that we have. You know, it's like opening Pandora's box. <laughs> it really is, and you know, even just adding on to what you're saying, Marcos. I mean, not only. The thing that I find is fascinating that ties the past to today is that unless we understand who we are and who we've been literally for hundreds of years, I don't think we can, we, we can't look through a lens and see reality. We're going to look at it as a, a, a one out. We're going to look at, uh, oh, the bad apple. We're going to look at everything as an exception to the rule until we start to see how things have pretty much always been and why it took blood, sweat, and tears to make some changes. It, it, it's why many conversations are so frustrating when we're talking about current events because the stories haven't been told enough. And that's why I love talking about what the intent of that mob was on May 21st of 1961 because for many it's it's it, it's it's too difficult to believe and I think it's one of the reasons why we don't teach that in a in in elementary school or in high school I promise you in Montgomery Alabama they're not talking about how the Pentagon was on high alert in Fort Benning Georgia and it happened in Montgomery you know just like how your mother may not want to go through those painful stories, and we understand why. You know what? Nobody really wants to feel pain. And as a result, we watch decades and centuries go by where we don't understand where we are in history. Absolutely. And we could even sidestep that to something like the Holocaust. Same thing. Mm. No one wants to talk. They may not want to talk about that because it's painful. It's hurtful. You know, it's, it's, it's a mass genocide against a, a group of people based on something you know i love that you brought that up because brian stevenson from the equal justice initiative makes an outstanding point about how in germany they're not hiding from their past you, you, no one is penalized uh when the holocaust is brought up in a in an academic setting 
no one talks about, um, oh, that's critical race theory because you're bringing up the Holocaust. Shush your mouth. These kids don't need to hear all that detail. In Germany, they, they talk about it plainly, openly. Why? So that the country can heal, so the country can move forward. Brian Stevenson talks about how you can't go uh, in, in certain areas. You can't walk very far without seeing a marker on the ground memorializing someone that was killed in the Holocaust. And I'm talking about in Germany. I'm not talking about in Israel or Poland. I'm talking about in Germany. As a result... Uh, people aren't trying to hide the conversation in Germany about the Holocaust. And, and I guess that's the question. Is it more painful to hide it or to be honest and be truthful mm. and deal with the reality of the situation so you can heal and move forward? That's the well, Dr. King reminded us that a doctor diagnosing your illness is not the one to blame. The doctor's trying to get you healed. So sometimes we got to rip the Band-Aid off right and conduct off. surgery. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. How did you... I want to get back to the images because these images were so provocative. They were painful. They were... Uh, um, to flip it around, they were beautiful. Mm. The people fighting for, for life. They were fighting for life. In a nonviolent way, they were fighting for life. Where did, how did you get all this footage? Where did you, how did you choose the way the story needed to be told? Because there's so many, like I said, so many images I've never even seen before. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in an, where we are in history right now, um, we have the ability to access certain things and some things that people don't choose to show. Uh, within their programming. Um, and for anyone who hasn't seen the film, I, I do want to emphasize there, there's nothing that is so disturbing, for example, that a child uh, should not see the film. Uh, but certainly um, the way that Lafayette describes some of the injuries, and one that, if, if you don't mind me bringing up here, because this this anecdote that Lafayette talks about um, a freedom writer by the name of William Barbie. Uh, and if you ever watch Eyes on the Prize, there's another freedom writer that uh, corroborates this account. But the mob mentality was so brutal and so vicious that they held down William Barbie, who I think was 19 or 20 years old, and they tried to shove a metal rod through his ear canal. And his hearing was permanently damaged. In fact, uh, he ended up um, dying prematurely uh, because of that injury. Uh, he got hit by a car. Um, and my understanding is that it's because he couldn't hear the car coming. So when we talk about people making a sacrifice, giving their lives for freedom, young people. Yes. I mean, let me just add William Barbie to the list of people that we can thank for giving their lives. Absolutely. And this all happened in what, about a, approximately a four-month period? It was, it was under a year. A year. Uh, ended up being just over 400 of these uh, people. Now, not everyone was young. I've emphasized young people. The vast majority uh, were young. 
Uh, but there were some older folk, too, that got pulverized by these mobs that were so incensed that white people would sit on the same bus seat with black folk. Um, I mean, can you, you know, enough to try to kill them. Yeah. Right. You know, to, enough to try to burn a church down with 1,500 people in it. It's just extraordinary. Incredible. What would you like, what's the takeaway from the film for you? What would you like to know about this film? Thank you. I, you know, I think my takeaway is borrowed from Dr. Lafayette. And that is that we can make a difference. It doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter if there's any education. It doesn't matter if someone is eloquent in the way they speak or write. Anyone and everyone, if you've got a heartbeat, you can change the world around you. Word is gospel. You just said it correct. Everyone. Also, tell us how we can get in touch with you. How can we, outside of the Harlem Film Festival, once this is over, how do we keep up with the film? Well, um, a couple of ways. Um, I can be reached at gastonmotel at gmail.com. Uh, um, also, I have a website, uh, civilrightsheritage.com. Um, either of those ways, uh, you can reach me. Um, on the website, you can also learn a little bit more, uh, as the name of the website implies. Everyone, within the sound of my voice, please keep up with this film. If you haven't seen it, make sure you go to inventive.org or the Harlem Film Festival, harlemfilmfestival.org to find the film. It's streaming now until May 22nd. We extended a week for visualizing it. Um, my name is Marco Suiz. Thank you for joining us for the 17th annual Harlem International Film Festival right here. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.